I'm Steve Kleinedler. And I'm Corey Stamper. Welcome to Fiat Lex. A podcast about dictionaries by people who write dictionaries. We're so glad you're here uh, listening to us talk about this. Uh, We've been thinking about doing this for a while. Yeah, and we just want to give you a little intro. What's the whole point of doing a podcast about dictionaries? Well, dictionaries have lots of interesting information in them, and everyone uses them. And who are we, you might be wondering. Um, why Why should you be listening to us uh, as opposed to anyone who has a concrete thought about anything under the sun? Uh, Corey and I have both worked on uh, dictionaries for several years. Uh, I was uh, on the staff of the American Heritage Dictionary for over 20 years. And I was on the staff of the Merriam-Webster Dictionaries for over 20 years. Gosh, we've probably got... 50 years of editing experience between us. Yeah, especially if you count all the stuff we did beforehand. I worked on a lot of uh, dictionaries for uh, a company that was called National Textbook Company that has since been eaten and subsumed by other media conglomerates. That might be part of Tronk now, for all I know. (laughs) Tronk. Uh, the Tribune Group. Uh, the uh, and uh, my background is I have a degree in linguistics and a uh, I took a lexicography course at Northwestern and I started getting freelance work from my professor after I graduated and one thing led to another as they say. And I have no degree in linguistics. I have a degree in medieval studies and I fell into this job. Uh, literally, almost I tripped on a newspaper which had the want ad for the Merriam-Webster position. And well, I- medieval studies, though, are hugely important uh, in, in this field from the standpoint of etymology or just understanding how words work. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of medievalists in dictionary companies. We could run our own Ren Faire. Yes. <laughs> and, and that ties in also, uh, we have both written books. Uh, I have written a English textbook called Is English Changing? Uh, published by Routledge and Linguistic Society of America. And I have written a not textbook, regular book called Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries, which is out in paperback this year. And in that book, you can find out how Corey literally tripped over a newspaper and uh, <laughs> ended up in the position that she did. That <laughs> so, was so, so to, to speak. speak. Yes. <laughs> All right. So again, dictionaries, what are they? Why are they? Who uses them? Who cares? Everyone uses them to some extent, whether it's uh, even though people may not use print ones as much as people used to, um, certainly people look up words all the time, whether they uh, enter terminology into a search bar or uh, look it up in print. That content comes from somewhere. And we are the people who write that content. One of the questions we get all the time and we thought would be a great question to address today in our inaugural podcast is... How words get into the dictionaries that you use. And how they get out of them. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about how words move in and out. Well, it's important uh, to note that uh, uh, some people, is, you, you hear people refer to the dictionary as if there were only mm. one in one authority, uh, sounded like the Bible, which is also level because there's multiple versions of the Bible as well. <laughs> uh, dictionaries are still in the process of being written, mm-hmm. uh, compiled, uh, dictionary entries being drafted, edited, written, uh, and uh, existing ones change over time. Yeah. 
And not only do they change, but different dictionaries serve different purposes. So different definitions are going to look different depending on who the audience is, who's, which company's writing those dictionaries. You know, Steve and I wrote for different dictionary companies, though everyone assumes that we wrote the dictionary. Everyone also assumes that we're constantly at war. We're not. We're we buddies. Aren't. We are. We're friends. Yay. Friends forever. Um, and as Corey mentioned, uh, there are different audiences for dictionaries, not just different uh, companies. So you could, for example, have a, uh, there are several different legal uh, dictionaries out there, and they are going to take a more ingrained approach to the legal defining than a general purpose dictionary uh, will. And you will find all sorts of dictionaries, slang dictionaries, for example. Yep. So so with that in mind, we'll just talk about general dictionaries, which are dictionaries that we've both worked on. So how do words get into the dictionary? The answer is not whimsy. <laughs> Sadly. So quit asking me to put your damn word in the dictionary. Oh, that, that, that's actually, uh, we're talking about how words don't get put in dictionaries, but a, a good way to not get a word included in a dictionary is to write to a dictionary company and say, hey, I invented this word, or I think we should add this word. Even if you are a third grader who writes a very cute plaintive letter, um, sorry, but that's not how it works. Those are the worst letters too, because we have to write back and say no, which is, you know, I mean, Who we wants are- to shatter the dreams of a third grader? Yeah, we are basically just autonomous thesauruses, but we still do have feelings. We don't like hurting other people's feelings. The way that words get in generally is through usage, not usage as in like, I'm writing a dictionary and I've used the word now in print once and so enter it, but sort of sustained and widespread usage in generally written usage, which is kind of a bugbear, but that's yeah. what we got. And, and, and it, depend, it also depends on the kind of word, you know, what, what realm it is, what category it falls into. Some words, uh, and these are in the vast minority, have a very easy path. Um, so if you are a scientist who has uh, <laughs> synthesized a new chemical element, you and your team get to name that. Uh, <laughs> and as, as long as the governing board approves it, that's the name. And you know what? In it goes because the people in charge said so. So... Tennessee, for example, which was synthesized by researchers in several universities in the state of Tennessee, uh, named Element 117 that, and uh, there you go. That's Tennessee. all you need. Tennessee. T-E-N-N-E-S-S-I-N-E? How do you spell that? That's right, Charlie. <laughs> the amazing thing is that I just spelled that aloud, and I can't actually spell aloud. And that was a Chumbly the Walrus uh, uh, imitation. <laughs> I'm dating myself there. Sorry, Tennessee. <laughs> All right. So usage. I said uh, written usage, and this is a bugbear. But the reason that we use written usage is it's, it is a standard way that we can do it. So why don't we take spoken usage? Because that's actually, actually, that's how words get created. First is usually in speech. They usually don't get written down first. The words that are used in, in, in the spoken vernacular are completely 
100% uh, valid. And there are uh, outfits out there that, that, that track this type of thing. Um, corpuses, which are large collections of words. There are some corpuses that uh, compile uh, written documentation and other ones that uh, got, compile um, samples of recorded speech. Uh, dictionaries, however, tend to focus on words that have been written um, generally, but not always, and more so in the past than now. Uh, not just written, but edit from edited sources. Yeah, edited prose sources. So poetry doesn't really count because you can use a word with, with a really non-standard meaning in poetry or with no meaning in poetry. You can just use it for sound. But the part of the reason that's difficult is because we now have access to more transcripts of spoken English. And the problem with that as a lexicographer is it's really actually hard to transcribe a word you've never heard before from speech into print. You can misspell it. You can mishear it. You cannot understand the context. So so that's one of the reasons why we focus on written edited English, though the edited, even that's kind of going away these days. Yeah, uh, more and more you will see uh, references to um, things in blog posts which aren't always edited or even, you know, the comment section or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And as to the spoken ones, you can phonologically determine the phonemes that are used. Uh, but if, if you were transcribed, and it's the same problem that uh, newspaper journalists have when quoting people, um, usually that... The, the quoted English in newspaper articles um, is is written out in standard English, even though when you speak uh, informally, uh, you're changing the, the velar NG at the ends of words like going to the uh, coronal N, uh, going to go in. Uh, you're probably not going to write G-O-I-N apostrophe in, in, in most examples of uh, written uh, transcriptions. However, that is what is being said. So do you, would you include that? Would you not? In the past, uh, when uh, there, you had the finite print page, uh, that limited what you could put into a book, especially when there's a regular phonological uh, change like that velar to coronal nasal pattern that we I mentioned. Right. So the the other thing that's interesting about this is this is this is how all words get in, and the way that you find new words to put into the dictionary has also, I think it's changed over even the last 10 years. Absolutely. In the past, when I first started, uh, you had uh, boxes and boxes of note cards uh, on which someone had dutifully typed or printed out and pasted onto uh, that note card uh, a, a, a usage of that word, also known as a citation. Uh, but even in the 90s, when I started uh, that shoe box of cards was already um, supplemented with uh, returns from what we call a quick concordance, a, 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 an electronic, uh, this, this, this program that overlays on top of a large corpus. You can search on a specific word and it will show you every instance of that word with five or 10 or 12 words, whatever you decide on either side of it to get some context by it. So even in the 90s uh, and, and before then, I just wasn't working before then, um, <laughs> you're, you're juggling these cards and these uh, citations in your concordance. But even, I mean, the, even the way that we got citations, I think, has changed. It used to be, so at Merriam-Webster, it used to be that all of the editors read for at least an hour, maybe two hours a day. We had a source list that was a list of uh, magazines, journals, books, uh, not just journals and magazines, but trade journals, specialty journals. Uh, and we would go through as an editorial floor and divvy stuff up. 
and say, you're going to be the one who's reading uh, National Review and The Nation. And you would read every, I mean, ideally, you read every issue that got delivered to you. And you read looking specifically for words that caught your eye, which were generally new words or new uses of old words. And that's how we used to get citations. This was before these these big uh, corpora were available, even, I mean, not just available for purchase, but just available, period. Uh, the first edition of the American Heritage Dictionary back in the 60s uh, used a corpus called the Brown Corpus uh, uh, from Brown University, uh, but in, in, in addition to these collected uh, citations. So that uh, corpus material had always been used. However, uh, editors still read in the manner Corey described and collected citations well into the mid-2000s, uh, by which time you know, much like every other uh, corporation in the world, outside <laughs> pressures meant more people were doing more things. Uh, and that was one thing that because information was so much more easily obtainable, uh, reading time uh, for markup uh, decreased over the years. Uh, but it, it wasn't just books or periodicals that you were assigned to. I remember once um, when we were discussing what the proper plural of pierogi is. Is pierogi a plural? You know, those little Polish potato dumplings. Uh, is the singular pierog, which is what it would be in various Slavic languages, but not in English. I took a box of Mrs. T's pierogies uh, and cut... <laughs> the carton and pasted that onto a note card as citational evidence. And you will find in the files, not just handwritten s stuff from way back when or, or, or taped or glued on photocopies, <laughs> but sometimes you will find like portions of boxes or whatnot <laughs> uh, appended to these note cards. Oh yeah. I used to, uh, I used to bring in things at Merriam Webster. We had a filing cabinet where you put all of your marked materials and we had a typist's room these poor women, their whole job was to type up citations and put them in our database and put them on cards. And I remember one day coming in, it was really early, early on in my time, coming in and someone had put like a lean cuisine box in the marking pile. And I went to go throw it away because I thought it was trash and I saw someone had marked it. And then I went crazy. I think I've, I've marked beer bottles and left them there. I remember marking diaper boxes when my kids were little. Um, people mark menus, takeout menus. What's are with the focus one. on food that we're all marking? I'm really yeah. hungry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of those uh, poor women, uh, we had a poor intern um, in the early 2000s. For some reason, we had our main citation file, but there was also a separate one that had been started for a separate purpose. And it was annoying because you'd always have to check in two places. So over the course of three summers with three different interns, uh, they had to uh, alphabetize this smaller set of cards into the ones with the, which not only putting it in the right place, but then that of course forces everything back. Right. So it, it was, it was uh, for three summers, this is basically what a college student <laughs> did. That's life skills right there. I'm sure that's worth but some kind the, of college credit. The, yeah, yeah. But and so through examining these citations, you find uh, evidence of how long a word might have been used, um, how widespread it is. Uh, we generally don't enter terms that are hyper specific to one 
one either, you know, one occupation or one location that we want some type of, it's a general purpose dictionary. So there's usually some type of general frequency by the time a specialized term has also reached the general public. That's one indication that it's time to go in. Yeah. And, and the, I think the rate at which some specialized terms sort of become widespread is different. So I remember um, both AIDS and SARS got into Merriam-Webster dictionaries really quickly because it was it, it was just sort of all of that evidence was there right away. You knew that these were uh, two, you know, syndromes and diseases that were not going to go away. Did there, it with us for Zika. Yep. And but the other thing that's really interesting is that you when you've got sort of this big body of words in front of you, you also see these really weird patterns of usage. Like sometimes you'll have a word show up in print once every couple of years or once every five or 10 years and then boom. And other times you have a word that shows up and booms right away and then drops out of use really quickly. And particularly in the old days when everything was dead tree publishing, you couldn't justify entering a term that was brand new unless you could justify that it was going to be around for another 10 years because that was the life cycle of a dictionary revision. And you can't, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but in print publishing, you can't afford two or three lines on a page for a word that is just not going to be common in five years. It's this test of ephemerality that used to be very important. Uh, and, you know, of course, nowadays you can just add a term online. It won't necessarily make it into print. Uh, I remember one of the very last words uh, we entered uh, for the fourth edition of the American Heritage College Dictionary was .com. And oh. it was, this was still in the late 90s. It was, it was it was, I think, right before or during the bubble. Um, and it was probably a little soon than we normally might have. But it was like, all right, this is this is now or never. This <laughs> word is probably going to stick around. Um, in, in that case, it's like, let's err on the side of the caution right. and put it in. But uh, not it, it, at the, even at that point, it's, I, the writing was on the wall, as they say. Yeah. And often, I mean, I don't know if it was like this for you, but I often found whenever we did revisions and we started looking through the the citational evidence, I would always find more and more and more words to enter. And then you have to do this very weird, you have to get very choosy in weird ways. Or if you're working on a printing, and again, this refers back to the day of, uh, did I just use refer back right? Is someone going to sure. ding me on that? I don't care. I don't care either. <laughs> uh, ding me if you want. Uh <laughs> Sense two. Sense two of ding. Yes. Uh, the, 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 uh, what were we talking about? Referring back, what am I referring to? To print. The when print. Oh, right. So if you're doing a new printing and say someone has died and you have to, quote unquote, open that page to fix the oh, death yeah. date, that then you can go anywhere on that page. It's like, oh, I can add this. I can add this. So one way, uh, it, it just by the sheer alphabetic accident of where the word falls, it's like, this page is open. I can insert this word. Whereas if it was spelt slightly different and fell on a different page, you might not have been able to do that. So. Right. And which kind of, so this underscores something that's really interesting too about dictionaries is that nobody realizes dictionaries are a commercial proposition. Everything is driven by how much will it cost? How much time will it take? Will we recoup our expenses? And that's just, you know, that just doesn't happen very much with language. Here's an anecdote. The fourth edition of the American Heritage Dictionary um, was in full color, um, which of course was expensive. But one thing it did, uh, because... 
the headword was in a in its own color, it meant that you didn't have to reverse indent the entry. Oh. And because of that, I mean, the, the entries could be flush on, on, on the left margin, which gained us like two characters for every line of an entry after the first line. The, 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 the savings in space by getting those extra two characters a line uh, was one of the things that offset the cost of going into color because, you know, we, but of course then we ate it up by just cramming that much more into it. Right. The amount of space, I mean, when people, add, and this ties into our, the, the next bit about how do words come out of a dictionary and the mm-hmm. short answer is not often. Uh, <laughs> when we talked about all the new words that were added to the fifth edition that weren't in the fourth edition, um, and people, where'd the space come from? It's the same length. A lot of it was uh, interesting design choices. Uh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that was between the third and the fourth. The fact that you didn't have to take up that space for the indent saved, uh, you know, allowed us to keep uh, thousands of words. I mean, when, oh, you, yeah. when you look at two characters per line over 2,000 pages, mm-hmm. that really adds up. Yeah. And, you know, when people ask about getting a word into the dictionary, too, they don't. Uh, one of the other parts of the commercial bit that no one realizes is that, you know, there's, we are never going to be caught up with getting words into the dictionary. We are always, always, always behind, always having to make sort of these weird editorial choices that are half based on, is this page going to be open or, or if you're going online, even sort of how many, how many people can we, uh, sort of how many people can we get on staff who are going to be able to do this kind of defining quickly and, then we need to have someone proofread it, and, and we have to have someone copy edit it, and then the pronunciation editor needs to go through it, and then the etymologist needs to go through it. It's not just, you know, me farting around at my laptop saying, I'm going to enter the word CRISPR today. That doesn't happen. It still needs to go through, you know, anywhere from five to ten other sets of eyes before it makes it online. So CRISPR, the gene editing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Naturally. Shout out to Carl Zimmer. We can tweet at him <laughs> for this co- podcast now. So, so that's how words get in. It's through written usage. Um, that's not historically always been how it is. The earliest English dictionaries, the word lists were just sort of, you know, in the 1600s and early 1700s, they were mostly just words that the single author thought of. So whatever they thought was worth entering, whatever they thought was worth studying. So early dictionaries were hard word dictionaries mostly, and they were written mostly by wealthy white dudes. Yep. And then uh, we're, of course, talking about living languages. If you are writing a dictionary of a dead language, it is possible to include every word because there is a, uh, again, I always go back to Tocharian B, uh, (laughs) we know what words were used. And unless there's another archaeological find where they find more inscriptions, uh, the words that we have uh, are the words that are there. And so you can have that finite list. Yeah. Corey, how do words come out of a dictionary? Oh, with difficulty. So I don't know what your, I don't know what the criteria at American Heritage is, but generally speaking, once a word gets into the dictionary, people keep using that word or people feel like they now have license to use that word more. They feel like the word's been made official, even though that is not at all what the dictionary does. And like you said earlier, uh, just that test for ephemerality, because we're not adding words until we think they're going to stick around. there's there's less chance of a word having to come out because it hasn't stuck. Yeah, and you never know when it's going to come back to life. Um, oh God, Snollygoster. 
Oh yeah, you do Snolly Goster and then I'll do mine. <laughs> so Snolly Goster, um, so very quickly, the way that we determine whether a word is eligible to be removed from the dictionary at Merriam-Webster is you need to prove that it has had no significant historical written usage and that it has no current written usage. And that's within a time frame of, it really depends, but I, I think when we were doing the collegiate, we were aiming for 50 years of no written use, which that's actually impossible to find now that everything is digitized. Now you can go on Google Books and you can find one dude in 1956 who has used this word consistently in every article he's written and that so now it breaks it so actually we enter far more words than we end up taking out and when we do take words out it has to be well considered enter snollygoster so snollygoster is a word it's a noun it refers to a shrewd or unprincipled person and it was removed from Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary for the 10th edition, I believe. So that would have been 93. And at that point, you know, they reviewed the evidence and said, eh, it has a lot of use back in the, you know, 40s and 50s, but not really much since. So, and we need the space. You always need the space. So they pulled it out. And then it turns out that William Sapphire really loved the word snollygoster and began using it in his columns. And then Bill O'Reilly really loved snollygoster and began using it on his TV shows. And so for the 11th edition, pretty recently, we had to put snollygoster back in because now people are using it again. So... And the example I like to use about the danger of removing words, uh, in the late 90s when we were finishing up work on the fifth edition uh, and we needed space on this one page, uh, we talked about dropping uh, the sense of uh, Chad associated with punch cards. Oh, yeah. Because the one area... Usually when we do drop things for space, uh, they tend to be like geographical entries that are suburbs of Los Angeles or Chicago right. or something that's encyclopedic information. The space is much better used for yeah. a, a vocabulary word. Uh, but obsolescent technology is... Oh, yeah, that's a big one. It's a fertile it's a fertile ground for possible uh, deletions. Uh, and we almost deleted Chad. And then I remember when it was going back and forth among the editors, I remembered that um, there were still some states that used punch cards for voting. And we're like, oh, well, we should keep it in then. And lo and behold, one year later, right after the book came out, uh, Florida, and uh, it, you know, it's good that we kept it in because suddenly uh, Chad was on everyone's lips. Right. Yeah. And hanging Chads, pregnant Chads. All those Chads. All the Chads. Oh, Chad. Oh, Chad. So, um, it's about that time. We hope so. that you have found this entertaining. Yeah. And if you want to tweet at us, you can tweet at us. We are at Fiat Lex Podcast, F-I-A-T-L-E-X Podcast. One of us will answer you. If you have things you want to hear on the podcast, let us know. We actually, both of these questions, how do words get in and how do words get taken out, were suggested by faithful Twitter Followers, so. Don't tweet at us that Fiat Lex is combining Greek and Latin. We know that, and we'll talk about that in a later <laughs> podcast. Yeah, you'll have to get over that. Yes. So thanks for joining us. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.